Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Michael Hatton on Parashat Acharei Mot Kedoshim. Registration is now open for Pardes' summer program as well as the Pardes Learning Seminar. If you're looking to study this summer with Pardes, please visit www.pardes.org.il. We look forward to learning with you online this summer. And now, here is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Parshat Achremot Kedoshim The Holiness of the Land of Israel The double portion of Achremot and Kedoshim contains much material that pertains to the matter of holiness, or Kedushah. The first section begins with a solemn description of the Yom Kippur service of the high priest. It goes on to outline various prohibitions concerning the offering of sacrifices outside of the holy precincts, as well as the consumption of animal blood, and then sets out a series of forbidden immoral sexual practices and relationships associated with both the Egyptians as well as the Canaanites. The section concludes, Do not defile yourselves with all of these things. For the nations that I drive out from before you were defiled by all these things. The land became defiled, and I punished it for its iniquity, and the land spewed forth its inhabitants. But you shall observe my statutes and laws not to do any of these abominations, the citizen as well as the convert that dwells among you. For all of these abominations were performed by the people that dwelt in the land before you, and the land became defiled. Let not the land spew you forth for defiling it, just as it expelled the nation that was before you. Vayikra chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Parshat Kiddoshim that follows, while much more eclectic in content, also unmistakably bears the stamp of holiness. Its various laws pertaining to a wide range of civil, ritual, and moral issues conclude with a section of forbidden sexual relationships that mirrors perfectly the end of Parshat Achremot. This mirroring effect is amplified by the cautionary note sounded at the end of Parshat Kedoshim. Observe my statutes and my laws and perform them, so that the land into which I bring you to settle shall not instead spew you forth. Do not follow the statutes of the nation that I drive out from before you, for they did all of these things, and I became disgusted with them. Therefore I say to you that you shall inherit their land, and I shall give it to you in order to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am God your Lord who separated you from among the nations. Vayikra chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. What is startling about this twin formulation presented at the end of Acharemot 
as well as at the end of Parshat Kedoshim, is that it personifies the land of Canaan in a most striking fashion. When the land is defiled, it reacts by spewing forth the defilers. Much as a person may suffer stomach upset by consuming foods that are unfit, and then curatively vomit them forth and find relief. But defiling the land has little or nothing to do with any direct human interaction with the soil. It is instead a direct function of human moral failure and iniquity. The land is defiled when human beings behave immorally and it responds by deposing them. Even more astonishing, the land of Canaan does not play favorites insofar as the nations that inhabit it are concerned. The Israelites who will shortly enter the land and repossess it from the Canaanites will not be granted unconditional immunity to behave upon it as they please. If they maintain and observe the laws of the Torah, then they will enjoy its bounty, for it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But if they also perform the immoral acts of idolatry and adopt depraved sexual practices, then they will be driven out of the land like their predecessors. Never in the history of religion has there been set forth a greater demystification of what we typically refer to as hallowed ground. Here, the holiness of the land, that in pagan and polytheistic mythology was an independent quality associated with the very earth itself, has been forcefully transformed to become a function of human moral choices alone. We hallow the earth, or else we defile it solely by our deeds. The Book of Kings preserves a marvelous example of just how seriously this principle was misunderstood even by well-meaning idolaters. During the reign of Jehoram, son of Achav, over the northern kingdom of Israel, the prophet Elisha, Eliyahu's protege, was active. At that time, somewhere in the 9th century BCE, the kingdom faced a variety of external threats, most notably from the more northern region of Aram. The Arameans centered at Damascus would make peri periodic raids into the kingdom of Israel, in order to pillage, but sometimes the relations between the countries were more cordial. The fifth chapter of the second book of Kings narrates an episode concerning Naaman. He was the chief of staff of the Aramean king and had become stricken with the debilitating skin disorder known as Tsara'at. On the advice of a small captive slave girl from Israel who had heard of Elisha's exploits, the king of Aram sent Naaman to Israel in order to have him healed from his condition. 
though he was initially reluctant to follow the prophet's advice to bathe seven times in the waters of the Ardennes, since he was expecting a much more sensational and supernatural intervention, Naaman eventually relented and he was immediately cured. Elisha pointedly refused Naaman's grateful offer of generous payment, but he did grant the pagan general's parting wish. Naaman said, Let your servant be given a measure of earth, equal in weight to the burden borne by a pair of donkeys, for your servant shall not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but only to God. Let God forgive your servant when my master comes to Beit Rimon in order to worship there, and he rests upon my hand, so that I too bow down in Beit Rimon. Let God forgive your servant in this matter. Kings 2, chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Naaman requested to take with him a measure of earth from the Holy Land because he sincerely believed that he would be able to worship God only by sacrificing upon its hallowed earth. And though he might continue to worship in the idolatrous shrine of his master, that service would be performed solely for political rather than for religious reasons. Elisha sent him on his way in peace, with earth in tow, and made no attempt to correct his pagan notions that associated physical things with inherent divine qualities. In our parshiot, in contrast, the holiness of the land, the presence of God with which it is inspired, is very much dependent upon the moral choices that human beings make. It is not to be regarded as intrinsic. Having said that, it is impossible to overlook persistent and popular traditions preserved in rabbinic thought, themselves based upon numerous passages scattered throughout the Bible that ascribe almost mythical qualities of holiness to the land of Israel. Among the medievals, the matter is most eloquently enunciated by Nachmanides, who was active in 13th century Spain. In a very lengthy commentary, centered upon Vayikra chapter 18, verse 25, the Ramban has the following to say. The verse states, The land became defiled, and I punished it for its iniquity, and the land spewed forth its inhabitants. The Torah was strict concerning sexual immorality because of the land that becomes defiled and spews forth those responsible. Sexual laws are obligations upon the person and are not land-dependent. But the secret of the matter is contained in the following verse. 
When the Supreme One assigned nations and distinguished between peoples, He set the boundaries of nations according to the number of Israel. For Israel is God's portion, and Yaakov His inheritance. Devarim chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Nachmanides continues, Though glorious God is the Lord of hosts and master of masters for all of the earth, the land of Israel is at the center of human habitation. It is God's special portion, designated to His name. No angel or heavenly being rules over it. Rather, it has been set aside for His people, who proclaim His oneness, the offspring of those that love Him. Therefore, he sanctified the people who dwell in his land with the sanctity of the sexual laws, as well as the majority of the mitzvot, that they might be dedicated to him. And therefore, it says, observe my statutes and my laws and perform them, so that the land into which I bring you to settle shall not instead spew you forth. This is to indicate that he separated us from all of the other nations upon whom he placed the rule of heavenly beings by giving us the land so that he would be our God and we would be especially dedicated to him. Thus, the land that is glorious God's inheritance spews out all who defile it. It cannot suffer the presence of idolaters or those who are sexually immoral. In this celebrated passage, the Ramban sets forth his thesis concerning the holiness of the land of Israel. The land is imbued with a special measure of divine presence. Therefore, those that dwell upon it live their lives in his immediacy. Of course, all parts of the world are ultimately under the providence of God, but the Ramban maintains that the quality of this providence is elsewhere less direct. It is accomplished through the agency of angelic beings that carry out God's desire. Of course, these angelic beings do not act with independent will, but only as a function of God's will, and thus are perhaps best understood as expressions of divine obliqueness. It is as if the king's rule over the provinces was managed by loyal ministers that did his bidding without hesitation. The tone of Ramban's formulation is mystical, as he himself admits, but the matter may be framed in rational terms as well. To dwell in the land of Israel is to be closer to the experience of God and therefore the land is designated especially for the people of Israel to fulfill His commands. The provisions of the Torah are themselves the means by which we connect with the Creator. They are best fulfilled in the land that is most attuned to that relationship. Although God's presence is everywhere, the potential for experiencing that presence is heightened in the land according to the Ramban. As a result, moral failures are less tolerated here than elsewhere. 
for the sanctity of the land that is everywhere else the potential for divine immediacy and closeness is by its very nature also the mechanism for dismissal when the provisions of the Torah are ignored or abrogated. As the Ramban states later on in his commentary, everywhere else in the world, the moral failure of nations does not necessarily lead to their exile from their land, but not so in the land of Israel. Here, the nation that fails to live up to the Torah's higher demands for ethical and holy living, be they Canaanite or Israelite, is driven out. The parsha, as understood by the Ramban, leaves us with a potent tension. For while the land may in fact have an inherent quality of holiness, it is precisely that inherent quality that demands a heightened moral sensitivity on our part. Sanctity of the land, therefore, is not an inert characteristic that is solely a function of divine immanence, as Naaman would have had us believe, but rather a dynamic property that reacts to our moral and ethical choices. It is the possibility for experiencing God in a way that is more immediate and real than anywhere else. But that potential, like all of the Torah's other expressions of chosenness, implies not privilege, but rather the burden of responsibility. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also follow us on Spotify and get the latest episodes of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rabbi Alex Israel discusses Parashat Emor. Thanks for listening.